Furthermore, the equation E is equal to mc square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cheeky Scientist radio show. I'm Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist, and we have a great show lined up for you today. We are going to start with the show me the data section. We're gonna go over some data that looks at what PhDs want in their career, what they experience when they transition out of academia. We'll talk about some of the challenges, the struggles, and of course, we'll talk about the overall theme for today, which is the biggest missteps, the biggest missteps that PhDs make in their career. We have several guests on with us today. We're very lucky to have Jim Gould, the postdoc director at Harvard Medical School on with us. We'll be introducing him after the show me the data section. We also have on Sarah Rodriguez, who is working in industry as a consultant. We'll talk about her career path. And if you are an associate, we will be bringing you on as well. We'll be bringing you on as well to talk about, uh, it, it will be bringing on associates to talk about their struggles in their careers too. Had some background noise there, but I think we got it figured out. So again, if you're just joining us, welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Something we've been talking a lot about this week is interviewing. Um, a lot of PhDs, they're still learning the interview process for industry. Now, when you're in academia, you learn to explore all of your options. You learn to be, ne you know, to never be too certain about your data, for example. Um, but certainty can work to your advantage when you're uh, interviewing for a job. You do not want to display uncertainty. You do not want to be acting as if you're exploring lots of different options, uh, as if you could change your mind on a whim and go back to academia, change your mind, and sure, take another job at that same company, or sure, you know, go somewhere else and stop working for them after a month. What they're looking for, if they're going to extend a job offer to you, most of all is certainty. You want to get into that career because you're perfect for that role. You've been waiting your whole life to work at that company, not other companies. One of the most common things that we hear in our association is, well, I don't want to, I don't want to come off uh, desperate. <laughs> I don't want to seem over eager. What? Yes, that's actually exactly how you want to seem during the interview. You want to seem enthusiastic and enthusiasm is, is the second most important thing next to certainty. Right? Of course, you have to have the skill sets, the substance, et cetera. But when you're there in person, if you're not enthusiastic about the position, if you're not certain that you actually want it, it's a non-starter. Nobody's going to extend you a contract for tens of thousands of dollars uh, and, and do that from a place of uncertainty. They're interviewing you to become more certain about you. So you have to go into it with that level of certainty. And you know, as PhDs, sometimes we get too literal and we're like, well, what if I am exploring other options? What if I'm not certain about this job? Focus on what you are certain about. Every position, right, every company has pros and cons. So focus on the pros and why, that why you'd prefer to work for that company over any other company, right? So the pros that that company has over other com uh, companies. You have to practice this certainty. You have to practice having it come across. When you hear people tell you to be confident in your interview, it's not so much being confident about yourself and who you are, that's part of it, but it's being confident about your ability to fulfill that role, to your, your, you exuding that you want that role. The enthusiasm part, you have to show enthusiasm. It starts in your face, you know, subtle lift in your eyebrows, nodding, active engagement in what the other people are saying. Like you've been, again, waiting for years, like most of you have, to get this job. So make sure you're doing those two things. They might seem like minor points, but it's, it's the area that we hear from employers that PhDs fall short the most. You have the technical skills, you have the transferable skills, project management skills, right? Time, or, you know, time management, organization, et cetera. But are you certain? Are you showing them that you can deliver? Are you engaged? Are you enthusiastic about the job? All right, so with that, 
I'm going to show you a couple of things. I'm going to share my screen, so we'll make sure that that is working. And for those of you watching publicly, we've been getting a lot of questions about where you can go to sign up to learn more about the Cheeky Scientists Association, where you can go to sign up to get all of our free materials. You can go to phdsgethired.com. If you're listening by audio, that's the easiest way to find it. Um, otherwise, you can see the URL here uh, that that will reroute to, cheekyscientist.com slash association dash learn dash more. You put your name and email here. We'll send you weekly updates about how you can transition into your first or next industry job. Make sure you also go over to the Cheeky Scientist blog, just cheekyscientist.com slash blog. Look at the blogs that we have out every week. We have multiple blogs out each week. You don't have to search anywhere else, else online for career articles if you're a PhD, because every week we put out a best of transition article that scrolls through all of the different articles that came out that week on everything from networking, CVs and resumes, interviews, transferable skills, academic blues, industry positions, business acumen, and more, and it ranks all of them in terms of the top articles that came out. And there's a great article that I want to point all of you to that is aligned with today's theme of the biggest missteps that PhDs make, five mistakes that prevent PhDs from getting hired and how to fix them. These will go into some of the topics we'll discuss today, but if you go to cheekyscientist.com slash blog and search five mistakes, you'll be able to find it there. So with that, we're going to jump into the show me the data section. Before we do, though, I'm going to bring on Mary on the full screen. Hi, Mary. Hi, Isaiah. How are you? If you can see and hear Mary, can you say hello, Mary, in the chat box, please? Hello, Mary. hello. It's good to see Mary on. Mary is in somewhere in Europe, yes? Yep, Denmark. Denmark, that's right. Well, thanks for joining. Please say hi to Mary if you haven't already. Looks like everybody can see and hear you. So I'm going to share the screen again. And we'll jump into the show me the data section. So if you're joining us for the first time on, our, on one of our radio shows, we always like to go through some data, for PhDs after all, on the topic that we're discussing today. So all of you should be able to see my screen. If you could type in screen, if you can see the show me the data section, we will go through it. I'll try to make it a, a little bit larger here for those that are viewing in one of the groups. That should be a bit better. So why are PhDs leaving their postdocs? Factors that influence the transition of university postdocs to non-academic scientific careers and exploratory study. Uh, there's a research gate link here that we'll put in the post show notes. And what we're looking at is a simple table. Table. So we have three columns, rationale, and then original, and then current. And under rationale, there are three rows to obtain a tenure track academic research position. So originally, 86.6% um, said this was their, their rationale. This is why um, they were in their postdoc. Um, current, 54.6. And then the other two rows, and we'll talk to Mary, who I need to move over there so I can see you. Hello. Uh, preparation for specific non-academic career, 7.2% stays the same. And then holding pattern will not pursue an academic job goes from original 6.2% to 38.1%. So Mary, what, what does this table mean and what, what trends are we seeing? Yeah, so I think people start their postdoc, a lot of them are 86.6% of postdocs start um, with the idea that they're going to obtain a tenure track position and then that shifts over time to whatever the current uh, rationale is. So you see that they decide they won't uh, pursue an academic job. Um, so, so we see that shift. Yeah. Um, Quite a big drop. I'm surprised that I want to know who these 7.2% of people are that they do a postdoc to prepare for a non-academic career. That's interesting. We'll have to talk to, to Jim about that. Um, I wonder what, what's the deeper rationale there and how, who, how they think that's going to help. And perhaps it's for a, maybe they're looking for a principal scientist position or a, a career, like some companies do well, very few, maybe like a Genetech or, or, or something. But I, I mean, we hear a lot in academia that you need more experience or people have the feeling that they don't have the right experience or enough experience just with the PhD, right, to get hired in industry. So I think that's what it's touching on. And I have to actually say I'm surprised it wasn't higher because we hear that so often from people. 
how am I going to get hired? I just have a PhD. I don't have experience, but actually they do. So. Yeah. And I think that misconceptions really, really uh, been broken down over the last few years. I mean, we've seen the data from nature and that especially specifically nature biotechnology showing that, you know, the people who do a postdoc, they never catch up to those who don't in industry. Um, Holding pattern will not pursue an academic job. This is fascinating to me, is how this uh, doing a postdoc can become a holding pattern that people will stay in. I don't understand it. You did a postdoc yourself. Do you think it just kind of like sneaks up on you and then you're just a bit, you just get used to weighing and exploring your options or what, what insights do you have? What insights? I mean, I was definitely on the academic track. I've been interviewed for faculty positions. Um, and, you know, I had two body problems, things changed. But along the way, I was less confident about staying in academia. But, you know, and even knowing people to get that got hired as MSLs, I worked with postdocs, I started a postdoc association, I think it's sort of sometimes it can just take a time, take time to let go. I mean, you've been in school your whole life, right? Mm. Yeah take time to let go. So it, the pain has to get bad enough to finally let go. Yeah. Uh, this next figure, this is from uh, a nature survey, which found only 15% of respondents uh, were able to obtain useful career resources at their institution. It's just interesting to see. I mean, I, I like the, um, the figure in terms of, and for those of you listening by audio, the question is how satisfied are you with the following? And there's two sets of bar graphs on the left. How many people were not satisfied on the right? How many people were satisfied with, with each of these things? Um, the first five, five were at about up to a 50, 50% level of satisfied. So with your PhD overall, degree of independence, ability to present research at conferences, guidance from advisor and lab, teaching duties. And then it starts to shift in the other direction uh, to not satisfied with funding availability, vacation time, benefits, number of publications, and then... At the very bottom, the most amount of people reported here, at least uh, for what they're showing, were not satisfied with career guidance. And this was something that there was a complete lack of. And I think still, if you're at a university that has uh, even an, a moderate career guidance, you are a select few. Uh, still, it seems to be getting better, but I don't know, Mary, what, what, what do we hear about the most in terms of a complete lack of guidance, some materials, occasional seminars. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of this is prepared by people themselves who have been in school their whole life, right? It's, I think it's a lot of it is um, getting, is connecting with people in industry to even know what the possibilities are. I mean, I think there's more effort being made to do that, but I mean, you'll talk to Lisa on the team as me. We both worked on the postdoc association. I co-founded one because there was nothing for postdocs. We couldn't even identify who was a postdoc at the university, let alone connect with them and figure out their plans and get them some support. So um, I think just, yeah, not a lot of resources have been put there. And yeah. And I think, I mean, in my university, they wouldn't even bring in people that were in non-academic positions. They said that during our departmental meetings, there wasn't... um, they said there wasn't funding for it, but they were, there was funding for bringing in academic people. Uh, so it's just an, it's an interesting problem, and, and uh, we'll, have, we'll be able to talk with our guests today about it. Um, but moving forward, there's another survey here. Uh, this is a satisfaction survey uh, from Nature, and the question that was asked is, what is the biggest challenge to your career progression? Now, this is interesting because this is people being polled who are currently in academia. So what do they see as their biggest challenge. And if we asked all, you know, any of you that, that are here in attendance, anybody watching on any, any of the live streams, you're probably going to say academic things, right? Um, and that's what this shows. So if you want to walk us through the, the different uh, rows or, or bar graphs, Mary? Sure. It's, I mean, 55% of the people polled said competition for funding was the biggest challenge they faced. And for me, that's quite surprising. I mean, I guess, I don't know if that relates to um, competition for funding by the PI so that their position can continue um, or so that they can do research. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's again, this, it's within the academic setting. Uh, funding is what people are focusing on. Um, and I would think it would be 
something else right now that on on the other side right it's like yeah. what 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 can i do and what are the steps i need to take to do that and how can i do it um and it, so it wouldn't be funding but there are you know to be fair 40 percent of people said lack of jobs so there's obviously there's an awareness um lack of networks which i completely agree with uh even going to conferences a lot of the time you're networking with other academics um which you know can definitely be helpful but there just seems to be kind of like a barrier between academia and industry it's mm. this 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 other side that people aren't aware of or don't reach easily um and then yeah other challenges i mean all the way down to language skills so it just there's a whole range of challenges to career pr progression but yeah and i would say uh all, all of these challenges have nothing to do with your ability to get an industry job. Um, they might spur you to getting an industry job, but what this always brings up to me is priorities. Yeah. Most of us get stuck for that same reason you mentioned previously in that academic mindset because you've been in academia your whole life. And so you're prioritizing based on what academia prioritizes. What's your biggest problem? Oh, lack of funding, not publishing enough. I'm not enough, enough papers, right? What's like, well, what do you actually want to do with your career? And you'll have a lot of people say, well, I want to get out of academia into industry. And then you ask those same people, what's your biggest concern right now? And they're like funding papers. That has nothing to do with you being able to transition into industry. And so getting them to shift their mind, your biggest problem should be, you know, finding more, even more time to network, right? Growing your industry credibility, increasing the number of informational interviews that you're doing per week. Uh, so you really have to, you really have to change your mind. You have to focus on what you want first in that goal, and then you can figure out how to get there, and that will expose your actual challenges, not just the challenges that everybody around you is, is facing. I love this last study. So um, this is on a site, uh, tandfonline.com, T-A-N-D-F-O-N-L-I-N-E.com, but the study is, is, is great. And what it found is that both exhaustion and cynicism uh, were statistically significantly decreased from the final year of study in academia uh, to the first two years of work. Um, and then professional efficacy, uh, self-reported, increased as well. So a lot of people, a lot of PhDs ask, well, what, are things going to be better on the other side, right? Will I be less ex exhausted, less cynical? Um, will, will there be a rebound, you know, like, is everything eventually going to make me miserable? <laughs> will, will I get to use my skills more, right? Like, will I actually elevate my skill set? A lot of people think if they transition to industry or somewhere else, like, oh, I'm not going to be doing real science or in real engineering. I'm going to, my professional status is going to go down. And so this study was pretty fascinating. And, and we'll, it's, a, it's a three, three figures that are very simple we're going to look at. All of them show the mean of something on the y-axis. The first one's exhaustion. And then a measured time point in terms of one, two, and three years. Um, uh, the final, with one being the final year of study, two being the first year of work, and then three being the second year of work. So when looking at exhaustion, what, what does this uh, graph show, Mary? Well, it shows that in academia, in the final year of study, people are pretty exhausted, and then it drops significantly in the first year. Um, to be fair, it does go back up a little bit, but not quite as high or nowhere near as high as it was in um, when they were in their final year of study. So um, there's this perception, I guess, or maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's not a perception, but that, you know, industry is tiring or, or that, that things, things are harder on the other side. But actually, if, if people are less exhausted, that's a pretty good sign, right? Yeah, and if you, focus on, the, and if you focus on the trends and don't nitpick the... Uh you know, the values on the y-axis or whatever, do the normal academic thing. But this is something we consistently see uh, in our group, in, in the association too, you know, from thousands of PhDs who have transitioned, the exhaustion does go down. But there is a rebound, which is important, right? No matter how slight this rebound is, you have to understand that if you're going to push yourself in your career, you're, you might get more exhausted uh, later on too. Like it's not the, the challenges don't disappear. We do see a huge relief during that first year. You get into industry, new things are happening. And then, right, the challenges come back up. But uh, generally speaking, they do not rebound as much as they were in academia. Depends on the institution, of course. Cynicism, same thing. I, I would say this is where the biggest relief occurs. And uh, I'm speaking more qualitatively 
uh, in terms of the association. But the graph here is looking at cynicism on the y-axis, measured time point, and you see a big drop, and it rebounds a little bit as, as, as well. Um, so cynicism, what, what do you see in the association, Mary, with people talking after they get that first industry job? Um, I don't know, relief, they're more positive, <laughs> yeah. more optimistic, right. um, just happy that it happened, wishing maybe they got there sooner. Um, but yeah, just they, they feel they're in the right place. Yeah, and I think this is something that certainly I would say even more than exhaustion, because exhaustion is, um, you can get exhausted in industry for sure. And we do see people really challenge themselves when they get into new roles. Like Mary mentioned, uh, medical science liaison roles, uh, management consulting, it really depends. But the cynicism, I think in, in academia, a lot of people, they go from, you know, they get taught to be critical of their data and critical of the research in a healthy way to being critical of people, critical of everything that they see, right? Critical, uh, like we experience it in, in chat boxes on a lot of our public webinars. People get super critical uh, over, over every little thing or person or they're not getting what they want, et cetera. It's because that kind of negative academic, I can only show that I'm intelligent if I point out something negative uh, mindset comes up. But then they get into industry and everybody's working as a team. It's a much more positive environment. They're not fighting for you know, the scraps of funding, et cetera. Um, and it, that cynicism tends to go away. And they're like, oh, I can actually be not. We even see that when people come in the association, like, oh, people can support, like we're not all tearing each other down, um, which, is, which is pretty cool to see. Now, the last figure shows efficacy. Um, and this is self-report. It's like self-efficacy, your professional ability, your ability to get things done. And what I like about this is you don't see a similar rebound, right? So if you're just looking for, for the trends here, and again, this is certainly what we see in the association, is that your efficacy goes up. You feel better about yourself, you're more respected, and you gain a level of healthy confidence that allows you to actually do better work than you were doing in academia. And by far, that is, that is the case um, for the majority of people who transition. And it could be because they have access to more funding, better equipment, or they're working with a team like towards actual milestones that are set for them instead of it you know, being kind of a carrot held out in front of you that's moved, uh, you know, having a moving target. Stuff like this, which allows you to focus on you know, your professional skill set. I would say, especially in R&D, Mary, and maybe you can, you know, uh, talk about some of the things that you hear too, but especially in R&D, we think a lot of people, they think that the research is somehow going to be worse in industry, but then they find themselves doing better research and doing it faster, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is faster. There's a team, there's a whole process, there are deadlines. Doesn't mean you're working a million hours a week, um, but just things move really quickly. And so you can look at all you've accomplished in a short period of time and how that contrasts to, ac to academia, which I think is a big confidence booster. Um, wow. And to have the support to do that and, and to know you're part of moving something forward that you know, could help patients or whatever the, the goal is. Yeah. yeah. All right, Mary, thank you very much. Please thank Mary for joining us from Europe. Great to see you on. Uh, thanks for staying up too. All right, so we're going to move right forward. Very excited to bring on our first guest, James Gould. I'm going to show his bio here, and then we're going to bring him on. So this is this is Jim. He is the director of the Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of uh, Dental Medicine Office of Postdoctoral Fellows, and he's implemented research, career, and professional development programs and policies for HMS trainees since 2011. I think we met for the first time in 2013, shortly after that. Um, Jim started a, a seminar series, some of the things we're going to talk about. Um, that he's, he's just done an incredible job, not just at Harvard, but I would say really being on the, the leading edge of developing PhDs uh, in their careers. He's spoken and published on career and professional development topics in a variety of forums, locally, nationally, including articles in Nature Immunology, uh, covering CV and resume uh, uh, conversion, interviewing strategies, manuscript writing. He's been a guest blogger and a steering committee member for Nature Jobs at its Career Expo, a mentor of the National Research Mentoring Network, a guest speaker here several times, a cheeky scientist as well as bio careers, 
Prior to uh, working at Harvard, he completed two postdoctoral fellowships at the National Cancer Institute of the NIH, where he chaired the Fellows and Young Investigators Association, interned with the Office of Training and Education, and also found time to stud study cancer metabolism. He is a member of the National Postdoc Association, where I just saw him at their conference recently, gave an incredible talk, uh, an incredible clinic, which we'll ask him more about uh, when he comes on, and uh, the Graduate Career Consortium and AAAS. He received his BS in biotechnology, and you can find him on LinkedIn. Let me click here. Might have had it pulled up already. Right here, so if you haven't connected with uh, Jim, I highly recommend that you do. He's always posting great stuff, always speaking, very, very active, and our, our oldest, uh, oldest in terms of going way back to 2003, person that we've uh, ever interviewed, and, and we've done a, a lot of collaborating uh, with Jim, always learning from him. So it's great to have Jim with us. Let me make sure I can get him on here. I think uh, that should do it. There we go. Jim, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Let me hide the... Uh... So great to be on. Yeah, it was 2013, right? I think so, yes. And that was the uh, summer series of... I think it was a, a leadership series, maybe. And I think you... Yeah, you, you start, did you start that at Harvard? Yeah, you know, it was something that we were trying to, to develop, you know, understanding what gaps in programmings we had. And one of the things that kept coming up from the postdocs was you know, we need to know what leadership is and, and how to do it. Yeah, and I, I remember, um, so it was the very first talk that I gave under Cheeky Scientist was with Jim, and he did a great job. He, he even mentored me. He was like, well, let's tone down this a little bit. <laughs> Maybe change, you know, change the topic here a bit, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, it's interesting, and I can't believe it was almost six years ago. Yeah incredible it, it, so yeah it's been a while and, and you know I, I guess I am one of your oldest uh, colleagues but I'm not that old I think you might be actually older than I am so. in terms of age yeah <laughs> I try I was correcting myself I was like I wait a second I'm aging myself because uh, yeah and I think you know what's been interesting to me is to, to see your trajectory and everything you've been able to do and the clinics you put on and you know thinking about the first question I was really excited to ask it because I don't I don't know if we've ever talked about it like, what was your path? Why did you decide to get into helping develop PhDs, to even go beyond that, to writing so much about it, and to, to, to putting on these clinics? Why, why do you do what you do, and how did you get into it? So why do I do it? it it's always been something that I've done, you know, even when I was a young kid, just helping others. You know, I, I wasn't perfect or a saint, but I was always willing to say, hey, you know, what about this? Because one of the things that, that I've found is I've made all of these mistakes that you were talking about on Cheeky Scientist, that you were talking about with the, the previous speaker. I've made all of these mistakes. And if I'm not learning from them, I'm helping other people learn before they make these same mistakes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an undergraduate, as a graduate student, and as a postdoc, I was helping my fellow students and postdocs figure out their larger issues, whether it was an interpersonal issue or um, conflict with their, their faculty mentor, or it was maybe a personal issue, but not so much. But how do I apply? What's my approach? How do I reach out to people? I've always been a people person. Again, I, I've made all the mistakes and hopefully I've learned from most of them. And it was very fulfilling knowing at the end of the day, I helped this person or I helped these three people. And compared to my research, I would maybe do one successful experiment a week, maybe a month, and it wasn't enough to sort of keep me going, keep me motivated, but I knew I had to finish my PhD and I knew I had to do, you know, the next step as a postdoc and we can talk more about that. Um, but it was really the, the people aspect of my research and interacting with smart people and, and them helping me figure out, you know, uh, my research issues as well as, as, career and professional development. But it, it was really fulfilling to do that. And I found that I was actually, I had a nice natural, you know, tendency to, to be helpful rather than harmful and giving bad advice. Um, and I found it very useful. And I, then I ultimately realized 
I could do this for a job. Hmm. The, the next step was actually convincing myself and then my wife that it was worth still getting my PhD and it was worth still doing a postdoc, but mm-hmm. I would be transitioning into uh, sort of a, a research adjacent type of position, helping people do their research because, you know, going into being doing a, a, a PhD and a postdoc, like, oh yeah, I'm going to cure cancer. And I quickly realized maybe it's not going to be me, but maybe I can actually help someone realize their full potential by removing some barriers or at least raising their awareness of some barriers that might be harmful to their research. So again, it just comes back to, uh, it was very fulfilling. Then I realized I could actually do it for a job. So that's fast. So in grad school is when you first were like, I want to help develop careers. Yes. Wow. It was mostly, I need to develop my career. Yeah. 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 If, if, I had an issue, many sure. others had the issue. And you know, began exploring how to do that, talking with faculty. Uh, thankfully, there were very sympathetic faculty saying, there's more out there than just academic research. Yeah. And became involved in developing a biochemistry student group for my department, uh, became involved in recruiting students, and you know, just developing myself to help develop them. Amazing. I didn't know that. And so, and, and it's part of your development now, you, you put on clinics, um, you know, all around the, the world. And these clinics um, allow you to interact with a lot of PhDs and postdocs, not, not just at Harvard, but elsewhere. What has come up for those clinics for you? I mean, I've seen you kind of change the way that you do them. What are you responding to in terms of the frustrations from PhDs, the trends of those frustrations? Of so one of the reasons I, I came up with the, the career clinic model, which covers CVs, resumes, cover letters, interview preparation, um, statements of teaching philosophy, and the sort of the academic research statement for academic job search, is I would meet with postdocs <clears throat> one-on-one, and each and every one of them had the same questions and issues. So I decided to, why not put them in a group and teach rather one at a time, I could teach 20 at a time. And not only me teaching or leading discussion, it's 20 postdocs coming together and helping peer, uh, as peers, you know, uh, mentor themselves and and each other. So it had a, a sort of a feed forward effect where I wasn't doing this 20 times, I was doing it once, and I was teaching them how to take critique and write for other people to read rather than writing their materials so only they can understand. And the other aspect is they're much more willing to read and critique other people's uh, materials. Mm. So there's more of a a peer mentoring aspect to it. And I don't have to teach it 20 times. Mm. So that that was the the initial evolution of of trying to develop these these, um, career clinics. But one of the, the, the biggest issue that I see even, you know, in these, you know, recurring series is that yeah. this is usually the first time they've ever pulled together an application. So they don't know where to begin. They don't know what, you know, why write a cover letter and what goes in it. What mm-hmm. do I need to have on my CV? What's the difference between a CV and a resume? And what does a, a consulting resume, how is that different from a, an industry resume? Mm-hmm. So they don't, you know, as I've said before, or many times with you is they don't know what they don't know. Yes. And what I begin to try to do is, is help them understand best practices and dispel some of the myths of, of what they find on the internet or what they've, they, or maybe a colleague have had a very, maybe poor, singular, unique experience and trying to tell them, actually, that's not how it really works. Hmm. So just demystifying the process. Yeah. And, and so part, so I want to dig into that demystification. Obviously we're talking about the biggest missteps today. So what are, let's just start with what's common. What are some of the most common mistakes? You mentioned some things about resumes, but the thing, the things that you find yourself repeating every clinic. Um, they're not sure how to sell themselves. Hmm. Um, so you know, a common mistake might be they're framing their experience in, in the wrong way. And as you said earlier in the, in, the, in the program, they still have this academic mindset mm-hmm. where they haven't really thought about 
the skills and activities that they've done and taking a step back and, and trying to understand what they mean in the grand scheme of things. Rather than I understand CRISPR to its fullest extent, it's what skills do I bring and what have I done to communicate those skills? Mm. Um, they, they don't know, you know, like, like I said, they don't know what each component of the process or application does or means. You know, a common mistake is that they, they don't ask questions. They think they're on their own in this process. Mm. So every time I do a career workshop, I thank them for being there and taking the time to take an hour or two hours to think about this because they're so focused on just doing their research that they leave the details of, of career transition and job application to the very end, which is the biggest mistake you can, you can make. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it's always fascinating to me how after you hear the same frustrations over and over, you're just able, and I've seen it with your clinics, you 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 really tightened the ability to uh, deal with those up front and to dig into some of the deeper issues that are really holding them back. Like you said, like the mindset things. Um, and that's what I wanted to talk about next was the less obvious mistakes that people are making. Like you said, you don't know what you don't know. Some of the PhDs that are listening right now, what are some mistakes they might be making or some of those misconceptions they have that they don't even realize like the deep, the real deep seated stuff that's keep that's holding them back. So, you know, some of the mistakes they make are, are being too focused on the wrong things. They're focused on negotiating offers instead of actually submitting applications. You know, they, they put the cart before the horse saying, oh, I, what if I have to, you know, negotiate two offers? And I say, you actually haven't submitted an application. Um, they, they think about, you know, really a, a hyper focus on publication rather than skills. Publications are important. They show productivity. They show that you are a collaborator. They show that you've actually done and built a track record of successful science, but it's not the only thing employers are looking for. Mm. They worry about the automated systems for resume reading rather than networking. So they're worried about the, the wording or formatting of their materials rather than talking yes. with people who are on the other side of those hiring systems to really understand what these positions mean, what they're looking for, and you know, understanding the language of whatever career transition you're, you're looking into. Uh, I have a whole list here. Uh, they, don't, they don't talk to their faculty mentors. They don't have an open and honest conversation. Sometimes they don't feel that they can. Yeah. So you should be developing that relationship early and, and going often, uh, ideally, talking with your faculty mentor about sort of the evolution of your career and professional development while doing a, a, as good a research as possible. Can I, and I want you to do the whole list, but I, that was always a big one for, for a lot of people here. What do you recommend if they just are dead set? And I know you've had people come to you and say, I just can't talk to my advisor. There's no way they'll kick me out of the lab or it'll ruin the relationship. What do you, do you, do you have you had situations like that? Do you recommend anything? Absolutely. The, the first thing I usually say is, is that actually true? Yeah. Have you actually had this type of conversation? How have you gone about bringing it up? Have you tried to engage them as a mentor saying, I'm thinking about this thing. I haven't committed to anything. What are your thoughts? Sort of bringing them in and sort of asking lightweight but probing questions about it. And then you can get a better sense of, well, they're gonna be supportive or they're, they're gonna be agnostic or they're really gonna be not helpful or even maybe even antagonistic. So if they're purely antagonistic or you think they're gonna get zero support, which is most likely not the case, is you don't have to tell them anything about your career transition or your, your process until you have an offer in hand. Hmm. You just need to make sure that you are still working as hard as you can on your research and that it's not, your job search isn't detrimental to the work you're, you're doing right then and there. So my first question is, is it a fact check? Actually, have you actually tried this? Yeah. And then if it's an extreme situation, you don't need to really disclose until you have something in hand. Perfect, thank you. So continuing on my, my list, yes. one of the, the, perhaps the, the biggest mistake, but it's very subtle and I, I keep you know, uh, pushing people on this is, you know, we get questions all the time is, what if they say no? What if it's in you know, an area that I'm, it might be a stretch? 
So mm -hmm. what they end up doing is they select themselves out of opportunities before they've even applied. So my, my advice is to let them tell you no. Mm -hmm. Apply as broadly as you can, be as open-minded as you can, realize that you're never going to be 100% fit for an application or a job advertisement that's written out. So mm -hmm. apply, network, talk with people, but never select yourself out. There are jobs that are obviously not good fits for you. And, you know, you, you can focus your efforts, you know, a bit more wisely. But if you're ever in a question of, would I be, you know, is this worthwhile? I say, yes, why not? It's going to take you an hour maybe to, to recraft and tailor some materials, but apply. Let them tell you no, rather than you selecting out even before you've tried. And then you can always say no later at the interview process or even the offer. Um, Perfect. Let me see. Doo, doo, doo. Um, and they're a bit too narrow in the way they think about their skills and experience. I'm mm. only this. I'm only a cell biologist. I'm only a computational biologist rather than thinking about yes. how their skills are transferable across sectors and, and fields. Um, they write and submit application materials with no critique from anyone else. So they often have those spelling errors, grammar errors, or errors of, of context where they only understand the materials they write instead of what other people write or understand. And, you know, and I, I read your quickly reviewed your blog before I logged on. One of the things is they, some of them don't have an online presence. Uh -huh. I ask, do you have a LinkedIn profile? No. I say, well, right after we meet, go and, and do this. And I give them a handout because we bring in speakers on, you know, leveraging LinkedIn. We bring in speakers on, on, just about any topic you'd like to, to, to learn about, they don't have a presence outside of their immediate lab setting. So there, there, there's a whole what an incredible list. Thing. Yeah. Yes. That's a whole blog right there. And uh, <laughs> I just want to, I just want to note for everybody listening that you heard it from, from Jim at Harvard, the focusing on that niche background is one of the biggest limitations to, to your job search. Uh, like Jim said, the, the, the skills you have are, cross-functional, uh, transferable, and, and not considering that is, is uh, it, it, it can really be detrimental. So I really like that one, uh, Jim. So I wanted to ask you to, uh, I always like to set up uh, something practical at the end, and, and this question came from our, our team. Uh, so I wanted to, to, to say, imagine this scenario. Somebody comes in, I'm sure this is, you don't have to imagine very hard for this. Somebody comes into your office, they, their lab just lost funding and uh, they're out of a job at the end of the week, right? Let's say there's a spending freeze, what, whatever happened. Um, they haven't done anything in their job search. What would you tell them to do to start? Uh, what would you tell them to do in the next 24 hours? So it's actually happened, unfortunately. Um, I actually had a postdoc this morning who wasn't in a, as extreme situation, but her lab is wow. actually moving and she was still trying to figure out whether that move was good for her personally wow. as well as professionally. So we, you know, I, I encounter that maybe all too often. But the three things that I would say in, to do in the next 24 hours, or at least immediately is, one, don't panic, you're not alone, and what resources do you have? So that's the first thing. So you know, good decisions don't come from places of fear. So make sure you're not panicking, realize that you have uh, an infrastructure around you, whether you recognize it or not, you have maybe friends or family, you have an office like mine or career services or, you know, you know, perhaps in the department, but you do have resources at your, mm. at your fingertips, at least explore those immediately. Mm. The second thing I would say is to reach out to your network, reconnect and begin asking for meetings. You know, can we have coffee? I, I have a situation that came up, you know, kind of suddenly, is it possible to get on your calendar in the next couple of days and ask them for advice and perhaps even ask them for, for leads. Don't ask them to do your job search for you, but ask them, yeah. have you heard of anything? Mm. You know, or do you know of any other people I need to be talking to? But definitely reconnect and reactivate your network because unfortunately it, it has happened and many people do have experience transitioning quickly. The third thing I would say, and even though it's, you asked what in, in, in 24 hours, you still need to be thinking long-term and midterm 
So mm. what is actually your, your transition timeline? Mm. How long do you actually have before you need to transition? Is it a week? Is it a month? Here at HMS, if you have been terminated, you get three months. Wow. Some places it's longer, some places it might be shorter. Mm. But work from that timeline, work backwards. And then finally I say, how can I help? So reaching yeah. out, asking for help, that's what you need to be doing. And uh, I really like what you, I really love that word reactivate when it comes to your network. Cause a lot of you think you don't have a network, right? But your network is not just, you know, anybody you can think of that who's extended you a job in the last week. It's, it's very likely just a dormant network of secondary or tertiary connections on LinkedIn or otherwise. And, and like Jim said, just have to reactivate. There's probably somebody in your network right now who can get you a job. Certainly your alumni networks. Um, so it's really, it's, it's incredible. We're really grateful to be able to have someone like Jim at, you know, one of the world's most prestigious, if not the most prestigious uh, institution pushing this stuff forward. So I, I hope you all connect with them. Jim, I want to ask you two quick questions if you're up for it that are a little bit off script. I'm just, I'm always curious about um, what do you think the fix is? You've seen the trends in academia and in industry where PhDs are going for their careers, the postdoc system. Do you think there's a fix? Is there anything exciting or, or, or novel that's been explored on any of the committees you've been on that you could share with us? So I was actually just discussing this last week. Um, I don't know if there's one single fix to any of the, the postdoc training issues or even the, 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 maybe the PhD glut, if that's what you want to call it. But I, I think there needs to be sort of a reframing of, um, of academic education and training from graduate school into possibly postdoc, going back into you know, having redefining what master's programs are because many PhD programs or many people who go into PhDs really might only need a master's, but there's so much work involved in the master's that they, they just kind of default and say, I might as well get my PhD. The other thing is masters cost money. PhDs are usually free, at least in the sciences because they're paid for by grants and, and the institution. So the, we need to figure out how to pay for research intensive masters and give uh -huh. an exit strategy out of the PhD possibly because hmm. not everyone who wants to do and continue into research, even into industry needs a PhD. Hmm. So, you hmm. know, that's, you know, when I was a grad, when I was a, an undergraduate, I realized, Oh, if I get a BS in, in biotechnology, molecular biology, what does that mean? And where can I work? I might yeah. as well just go ahead and get a PhD so I can be kind of in control of my own career and that, you know, it's just, there were two default steps, defaulting into a PhD program and then defaulting into a, a postdoc program. As, as the, the earlier speaker mm. said, it's just sort of a holding pattern. I need to figure, I need to have time to figure out what I'm doing. Yeah. We need to have exit points in the PhD program or at least the, the post, um, postgraduate programs and masters and PhDs. We could consider um, postdoc tracks we can have an industry track. We can have a, 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 a academic faculty track. We could have a teaching track. Some places do it, but not on a larger scale. And having those types of tracks, even within the same lab or faculty lab, it could help those conversations happen that aren't happening, talking about career and professional development. I need this type of research or skill or this type of professional skill in order to transition in three years rather than and waiting and figuring things out over eight years. So that is sort of an idea that career and professional development, even vocational, even that might be a bad word, you know, thinking about education and training as a vocation rather than I have a PhD, the world is at my fingertips. No, we need to think about what we're actually going to be doing and how to transition, you know, effectively and how to get jobs because at 35 years old, postdocs should not be facing an application for the first time. <laughs> well said. Uh, great line to uh, end on, too. I just, again, I'm really grateful that Jim and, and there are very few like him that are on the inside who can actually make some of this change possible. Um, I continue to learn a lot from Jim in terms of his approach. You can tell one of the most polished approaches ever to uh, helping PhDs get into non-academic careers. I don't know how you walk that line, but you do an incredible job. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Great to see you on, Jim. Likewise. Thank you for having me.
Please thank Jim in the chat box if you haven't already. Excellent interview. And uh, we went a little over, but I, it was definitely worth it. So really grateful to have, have Jim on. And uh, I know we'll see him again soon. All right. Thank you, Isaiah. Thanks, Jim. Bye. All right. So one more time, please thank Jim if you haven't yet. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. And we're going to move right on in. I want to make sure we have time to talk to, to Sarah Rodriguez. I'm going to show her LinkedIn profile here. So Sarah is one of the very first people to join the association and get hired through the association. I think in our founding year, she came in, she was maybe the third person, third ever. And this is, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of members later. Very excited to have her on. Uh, she is cur currently a consultant at Elsevier. Um, she's had multiple other jobs. She's worked at Agile Bio, CEA, um, in terms of her, her academic background. Um, very, very excited to bring her on and talk about her career track and how she got into it and what she does. I know some of you have been considering um, working for different uh, journals or publication uh, companies. Uh, you've considered being uh, consultants and, and doing things that are off the bench. Sarah is a, a great person to talk to, and I'm going to bring her on. That should allow her to start her video. And we will talk with Sarah. I can hear Hello. Hi, hello everybody how are you <laughs> if you can see it here sarah okay can you say hi sarah in the chat box please thanks for joining us thanks for staying up good to see you <laughs> it's fine it's just uh 8 p.m here <laughs> ah okay not too late not too late <laughs> no so yeah so it's been a while i know you've you've had a a few careers now a few different uh jobs in industry and i'm excited to hear about this one uh, can you talk a little bit, just help us understand what you do and, and who you work with? Yeah, sure. So, um, so before joining my current company, I worked as a business develop developer at a, a small company, um, Agile Bio, and um, data management, basically. And then uh, I joined um, a company maybe you know of, uh, Elsevier. So most people know about the publishing of Elsevier, but actually Elsevier, it's more an analytics company going through, through um, this transition from uh, what content and what we can do with uh, data evidenced uh, decisions. <laughs> so, more, so more data management, right? So you're more on like the analyst side and you're looking at like consumer analytics, I'm guessing? So yeah, so in my job, I, I get insights for internal insights, so some insights uh, that they are based on consumers, but also insights to the, to the customers, um, to the return on investment, um, also doing workshops, um, national trends, um, and um, analysis of uh, a bunch of data that, that is on the impact and publications of uh, of a, a country or an institution or a department. And this is, this is fascinating. I love, what, I love what's happening just in the last couple of years. Like if you see jobs that end in analyst or consultant, um, you can be sure that you can get it, right? Even, or researcher, like we hear a lot about user experience researcher, customer consultant, uh, business an or analyst or consumer analyst. You're looking at data, it's data analyst management, you have to have experience collecting it, et cetera, but it's, it's on the market or how customers are responding to stuff. It's to help guide decisions in terms of, like, like Sarah said, product development, business development. It's, it's an exploding field. It's like data scientists is, is, uh, the, is kind of splitting, and there's like the data scientist positions where you need programming languages, but then there's data scientist positions where it's more about data analysts, like analyzing data, and those are going into these other job titles and types. 
which is good news for most of you who don't know programming languages, you can get into these. Um, so, so what do you love about your current job, right? I mean, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, so maybe it's a very much cliche that uh, we don't have like a routine. So, but what I um, actually like about it is we have a range of, um, of uh, programs, tasks that we do. So sometimes I am over my Excel doing a presentation on um, uh, how the, uh, the return investment and opportunities, maybe gaps, etc. And uh, the other day I may and a customer face-to-face -face or doing a workshop or um, doing big, big events, bigger events um, to uh, institution. So um, I guess it's, a, it's a, like a perfect fit for me that, that likes that data analysis, but mm -hmm. also likes to be, to have not just like code data analysis and delivering it, but also have this face-to-face uh, -face with the customer and public speaking side as well. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so it's, it's very similar to what a lot of you have done with data. You've collected it or, you know, maybe you're not collecting it yourself, but you're finding out where the data is and you're collating it. And then you're analyzing, looking at trends and even presenting it. Uh, so I, I, again, it's a, a great, great career track. And can I ask a little bit about how it's structured your company? What departments do you work with the most? Is it sales and marketing, product development, business development? What's, what cross-functional departments are you interacting with daily? A lot. So we are like uh, uh, most of the big companies like in a mat matrix structure. So I work with different, with different marketing de uh, departments, could be the regional, but also global pr uh, product development. Sometimes also technical support to support um, the, the sales, I'm part of the sales team actually, um, and um, also the, the, business, the, the business development, the business developers, sometimes we have collabor collaborations on, um, on key data. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we, we work, um, uh, like collaboration is key, and uh, the more you collaborate inside the company, the better it's viewed. Uh, let's say so 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 no it's not working silos doesn't work uh, usually in the industry even more in a matrix where this is uh, could be a really um, uh, a threat so uh, collaborating through through different departments and sometimes departments that are that you haven't heard about <laughs> it's uh, and uh, be able to jump on uh, sometimes last, last minute projects as well. Yeah, sorry, so, so Sarah's been, she's talking about the matrix hierarchy, right? So I was gonna show a couple people how that is, right? A lot of us think of hierarchy in terms of flat or vertical, but you're, you're saying you work in a matrix hierarchy that's driven by the projects, correct? Yes. <laughs> and that's basically what it is. So like the hierarchies uh, really divided up by the projects and, and how they intersect with the different departments. So there's a good image here I was going to try to pull up very quickly because I think it's, a, it's something that a lot of, a lot of PhDs have, have no experience with whatsoever. Um, this should show the full image if you can see that. Right, so this is a matrix hierarchy where you have project leaders or projects and they're intersecting with different departments. Of course, it can vary, but that's how things are structured. So instead of the hierarchy being based on the people, it's driven by the projects and the departments. It's pre pretty fascinating. I just wanted to mention that very, very quickly. Um, thanks for bringing it up, Sarah. The, the, uh, the, I wanted to work backwards now to talk about how you got into this role. And maybe you could tell us how you got into it and then what people could do if they wanted to get into it. Like if you could go back in time and maybe what you would have changed to make your candidacy even better. Yeah, so um, one, one of the things J James was uh, talking about was the narrow mindset, and mm. this is so true. I, co I come from oncology and hematology, so who would know I would be working with uh, multidisciplinary data. Sometimes I, I have some, some things on medical side, but sometimes I have things, um, uh, other kind of data and other kind of, uh, of metrics that I had to learn, but uh, as a PhD, you can learn very fast. So um, one, so a thing that uh, I could do, I could have done earlier 
was to not try to fit a job to what I have. So I have a PhD. So what kind of jobs are there for PhD? But really list what uh, I like to do and what I see myself doing in in the like in long term. So mm. uh, I I so I've I've done this map like five years ago. So the third ticket to join. Yes. <laughs> uh, so was about traveling, do, uh, giving um, giving lectures at conferences. And today, this is, um, this is also part of my job, although it's not everything, but I'm doing this. Mm. Um, but then it's not, awesome. yeah, sometimes we are also thinking about just the next step. So mm. the next step, I was not traveling so much. My, my first role was a, a step closer, but was still not ideal. But I think also it's important to have this long-term strategy, maybe your next step would, it's not going to, per, to be the perfect one, but uh, you, you have to understand why you're doing it to leverage what kind of skills so that can better prepare for your, your, your second or third step. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And, and so Sarah's talking about the transition plan where you go through and you figure out your professional lifestyle first, and then you fit a job to that. And a lot of you are like, I don't have time for that. It's too, too, too theoretical. But there's real value because if you can figure out what you want to do on a day-to-day basis, uh, it's easy to find a job that'll, that'll fit to your professional career. But kind of picking and trying to choose the job title first can lead to some pretty big mistakes. Um, if, if you could go back and talk to yourself uh, you know, two years ago or, or somebody who's trying to get into this role now, I know you touched on it a little bit. How would you tell them to prepare? What transferable skills would you tell them to gain or to communicate? Um, I think would be on presentations, um, presenting yourself, um, having uh, elevator pitch um, ready, um, know how to sell yourself because this is what you're going to, to also um, be doing. So you're going to speak with customers um, uh, from, uh, from data that you have analyzed, etc. So it's, uh, it's important that through your interview, uh, you, you demonstrate that you, you, you are in the handle of this also. Mm-hmm. Um, I think analytics is very easy for PhDs to show, but sometimes in a CV, we can drag on on project on protein A that I discover whatever gene, B, C, D, and in industry, I don't care about it. It's... For me, it's more um, um, it's more attractive if I see in your CV. I analyze gene set data and uh, uh, was if, uh, I took this um, this to to make this kind of decisions or I published this article that demonstrated this and that in a very lay way. I don't need all the details, but uh, uh, instead of just uh, just going to the deep of the science. To take a step back on how better to sell you the skills that you have now to the positions that uh, that you want, and as a PhD, I know sometimes it can be hard if you are just starting to do it because you you again the narrow mi- mindset. I just do flow cytometry. I just do in vitro cell culture. Sorry for the examples in biology, but this is where I come from. And then you are trying to feel in vitro culture and, uh, and flow cytometry into, into job titles. So all, all those skills also have other transferable skills as data uh, analysis um, and, uh, and uh, communicating your, your projects uh, into different assemblies to experts, which, are, which, which is very hard, not all people know how to do it or how to face difficult questions either. Hmm. Fascinating. No, that was incredible. Thank you very much for sharing, Sarah. It's, it's great to see you and, and I'm always impressed with your career success. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Isaiah. Bye-bye. Please tell Sarah thank you in the chat box. Great advice. I, I love it because Sarah, oh, she just gets it. She hit on every single, I mean, some of the biggest misconceptions that we all have uh, when we're coming out of academia. Some of them a lot of you know a lot of you are dealing with those misconceptions now so hopefully after hearing it from Jim hearing it from Sarah you can start to wrap your head around it and get excited about these new roles for PhDs again analyst consultant researcher 
start to key in on those keywords. Um, you can get into those positions. No matter what PhD background you have, we, we have humanities PhDs that are getting into user experience, researcher, and different analyst positions because you know how to do research. Even if it's not with hard STEM data, it doesn't matter. Most of the population cannot do research the way that you do, where you'll dig into a topic and then look up and two hours have gone by. It's a very rare quality. Leverage it for these new jobs. That takes us to the end of the public portion of the radio show. Great to see you on. Incredible show here. Uh, please thank our guests if you haven't already. The audio version of this will be available on our podcast in a couple of weeks. If you go to cheekyscientist.com and you sign up on our website, or if it's easier to remember, get uh, phdsgethired.com, phdsgethired.com, sign up there. We will send you uh, information on our po podcast when they come out. You can selectively choose if you want updates on podcasts or blogs. I send out uh, job tips weekly. Tech for, uh, just a text form uh, email only of my personal job tips, no links, you know, nothing promotional whatsoever. You can sign up for that as well. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll see some of you on the list. I'd like to send you those job tips. If you have any questions, you can ask them wherever you are watching this. We have a team there. So if you're watching us on Facebook or YouTube or wherever you're watching, we're here to help you. And we hope to see you in the Cheeky Scientist Association soon. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.